0: Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Man. Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy during this global pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Jia Dale to the podcast. Professor Jia is an associate professor at the School of International Studies at Beijing University. His work covers alliance politics, China-U.S. relations, Chinese foreign policy, and cross-strait relations. He's published work in Chinese and English in multiple journals and news outlets, including The China File, The Washington Post, China International Strategic Review, and of course, our very own Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Professor Jia got his PhD in political science from the University of Pennsylvania in 2012. Prior to that, he studied at Beijing University, where he received his bachelor's degree in international studies and economics, as well as a master's in international politics. Professor Jia, thank you so much for joining us. Many experts have said that uh, U.S. China relations have reached a real low point in more than four decades of official Mm -hmm. relations between U.S. and China. And I think a lot of our listeners are curious to understand how did we get to where we are today and what actions have both countries taken that have contributed to the current state of relations? How can we move away from what feels to be a continual downward spiral in the relationship and identify more constructive means to manage our differences and cooperate where it's in our interest to do so? I wanted to use our discussion today to kind of dig deeper into mm-hmm. these kind of questions, uh, looking in particular into the role of ideology in the bilateral mm-hmm. relationship and its mm-hmm. impact on specific issues like Hong Kong and Taiwan, as you've written and have talked about these issues related to ideology. And so I want to take the opportunity to ask you some of these questions. So. To begin, um, I want to take a look at, at how the Chinese and the U.S. view each other, how their views of each other have changed over the past decades. You recently published a piece in May, I believe, entitled Ideology and Strategic Competition, and you explored how ideology has impacted the relationship from normalization to today. In the article, you wrote that Cold War-style ideological warfare turns competition into conflict and polarization. For our listeners who may not have had a chance to read your article, can you give them Mm -hmm. a sense, just a brief walkthrough of the major shifts that you've seen in the role of ideology in the relationship over the past four decades?
1: Sure, sure. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, It's a good pleasure to be on the show with with you talking about U.S.-China relations and particularly on the role of ideology in the relationship. Actually, let me begin by talking a little bit about what brought me to this topic. Actually, I was based on international relations theories. uh, I see myself as a realist who in general do not pay much attention to to the role of ideologies in IR. However, I think in the last couple of years, I myself was a little bit surprised by the rising importance of different ideologies on the bilateral relationship between China and the U.S. As Mm -hmm. I said, the Trump administration, actually starting earlier from the Obama administration, they are both more so under President Trump. Are less ideological than previous US administrations after the end of the Cold War. Not much you know, democracy promotion, nation building is out of the question, uh, eccentric, eccentric. Actually, the Trump administration uh, themselves claim that their policy is principled realism. On the part of China, I don't believe, of course, this is debatable, but I, I believe that China is not exporting a so called China model. So given that both countries are less interested in promoting or spreading their own ideologies, why are ideologies gaining more significance and prominence in the bilateral relationship? I think that's what brought me to think more about this topic. So I uh, idea
0: can yeah, yeah. often be very, very abstract uh, and an abstract concept to many people how do you define it in terms of the U.S.-China relationship?
1: Well, I think the, a simple way of defining ideology is just about what's the best way of organizing politics and economics uh, in a society. I guess that's a, that's a simple, you know, maybe less academic way of defining it. I think on mm-hmm. that, China and the U.S. do have very different ideas And also what makes ideologies different from daily ideas is that ideologies have an action plan. So my core argument is that, at at least uh, currently, the U.S. and China are not having Cold War-style ideological conflict in which both the U.S. and Soviet Union were trying to spread their systems to the rest of the world which is not the case right now. However, the US and China are having a security dilemma like situation in the ideological domain, uh, which means that they are taking actions actually to defend their own political systems or values, but they are doing so in a way that the other side sees as a threat and they take their actions Mm -hmm. in response. Mm
0: -hmm. And give us, some, give us some examples of how it manifests itself in the course of everyday U.S.-China relations in your observation.
1: Actually, as I, as I explained in the article, the impact of different ideologies on a relationship actually can manifest itself on three levels of relations. You know, it's on the domestic level, as well as concern about each other's influence in other countries. And a third uh, concern about each other influences in the international order. So that's the general picture, I guess. A example for, from uh, daily interactions, I think, can be seen from, I think it was last year, about a tweet, comment from the, the NBA basketball team, right. Houston Rockets, uh, right? Uh, Manager General Murray, you know, he basically said he was in support of Hong Kong's protesters, which... Brought a, a fire, a storm uh, of public opinion uh, reactions in China's social media. So here you can see a very different, a very sharp contract between two different ideas. From the majority of Americans, the you know, freedom of speech is sacrosanct, right? It's something that's right. sacred, that's non-negotiable. But for the majority of Chinese, I think national unity is non-negotiable. Well, I see some Chinese comments is that, you know, he is free to talk, but we are free to boycott his team. Actually, a friend of mine (laughs) works for NBA China. She asked me for help, you know, how to, they are kind of caught in the middle. She asked me for advice on how to manage this delicate situation. Actually, I've been still thinking about how to respond to her (laughs) request. So it's not, it's a difficult decision. I mean, a situation-
0: Hong Kong is certainly an area, I think, in U.S.-China where ideology appears particularly prominent. Taiwan, I think, is another issue. The yeah. U.S. and many Western-style democracies are are concerned increasingly with Beijing's actions regarding Hong Kong and Taiwan. And as you yeah. suggest, this is something Beijing often views as infringing on... Chinese sovereignty and interfering in China's internal affairs. Let's just look at both of those issues. Let's look first at the Taiwan issue, if we could. Yeah. On this issue, one of the dynamics that I see as I observe the situation, both mm-hmm. the U.S. and China are continue to blame each other for taking actions that they argue alter the status quo on Taiwan. Each side is interpreting the other's actions as provocative, Mm -hmm. uh, which of course heightened the potential for misunderstanding and conflict. And you've written extensively Mm -hmm. on cross-strait relations. So stepping back, why is Taiwan uh, such a central issue in the relationship in your view? And how does Mm -hmm. ideology factor into US-China disputes over Taiwan?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think you know, as China has stated often, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, you know, together with Tibetan issues, are China's core interests. But uh, but I think uh, it's actually more than that. Maybe because Taiwan, as you know well, is I think it's not just the core interests, but also a very important part of Chinese national identity. Right? It's the kind of the last piece of territory lost during this century of humiliation, when China was weak, when China was at the mercy of the Western powers and Japan. So, you know, whenever there's something come up about Taiwan, I think, uh, you know, Chinese people in the mainland have strong feelings about that. But on the part of the United States, I think it's mainly a credibility issue. It's the message about the U.S. credibility toward its allies and partners. Although Taiwan is not a formal ally of course of the US, but it's kind of you know, quasi ally in a quasi-ally in in the international relations literature. Mm-hmm. So the US doesn't want to appear to be losing credibility with respect to Taiwan and will be seen as less credible in the eyes of the US other allies in the region especially. So so I think that this is a the same issue, and perceived difference in Beijing in, in Washington.
0: When I talk to you know, Trump officials about Taiwan, they're very quick, of course, to point out steps or actions or policies that they see China taking uh, with mm, regard yeah. to Taiwan to squeeze Taiwan's international space, increased military pressure on Taiwan. In terms of Taiwan's diplomatic allies around the world, in the last four years, China has convinced at least seven to move to the Chinese side mm-hmm. over the Taiwan side. There's only 15 remaining now for Taiwan. During COVID, which you hear concerns that Beijing would not let Taiwan join the WHA as an observer. Mm-hmm. And during COVID, of course, people felt this was particularly egregious. There was a lot of debate at the mm-hmm. National People's Congress about the Chinese premier leaving out the word peaceful mm-hmm. in talking about, the reunification with Taiwan during his annual work report. And there appeared to be some debate in China about whether or not now may be a strategic opportunity to retake Taiwan, I think, which caused concern in the U.S. And these are all, you know, these are all action and steps that the U.S. points to in saying that China is trying to change the status quo on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. If from Beijing's perspective, what is the perspective of the U.S. and its one China policy with regard to Taiwan and how have recent actions toward Taiwan been interpreted in Beijing? Yeah,
1: sure. I think it's really about different perspectives on the status quo. What you have mentioned just now, I think uh, is true. Uh, China has done a series of actions, both Militarily, diplomatically, and also in terms of you know people-to-people exchange, because the tourism, right, basically uh, is not completely cut off, but uh, almost. And when the U.S. sees this, they see that you know Beijing is changing the size of coal. But I think in the eyes of China, it was what happened in the island of Taiwan after 2016 that has been driving Beijing's decisions, because after. Tsai Ing-wen came into power. As we all know, that she didn't explicitly accept the 992 consensus. And also, there were some steps taken uh, both by the Tsai Ing-wen government and also some of the DPP officials or people in the in their legislative body. The steps that are seen in Beijing as moving, you know, gradually or in a less visible way toward. Uh, what we call like cultural independence or incremental independence, that kind of things. So when Beijing sees that, Beijing believes that it has to send some messages. However, I don't think that Washington would be concerned about what Beijing is concerned about. Those cultural independence, cultural connections. So I think there there's a different perceptions. One piece of evidence for my interpretation just now is that I you know when I read. John Bolton's memoir, he mentioned Taiwan f- a few times. Yes. And in one place, he said that he, of course, he was criticizing China. He said that you know, Taiwan did not threaten China militarily. Actually, Taiwan was cutting down the size of its military, something like that. And then why you know, Beijing is trying to you know, threaten right. Taipei. So that to me is a clear example that for the US, the threat From Taiwan to mainland China should be military. However, I think for mainland China, the threat from Taiwan is not just military. Maybe it's much less military, but more political. The different perceptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The
0: other thing, of course, that came out in John Bolton's book is President Trump's perspectives on the issue of Taiwan, which indicated that he doesn't have much concern over. Taiwan, apparently he had a Sharpie in his hand and the big part of this Sharpie is China and the little tip is Taiwan, you know, basically saying, why should I care about the little tip of this Sharpie? (laughs) Right. What kind of uh, messages does that send the Chinese leadership in terms of, you know, this issue that you raise about America's credibility in the region, Mm -hmm. both, you know, as you were talking about to allies and partners in the region. But also, what, what kind of message does that send leaders in Beijing?
1: Right. I think that, of course, for Beijing, that's a welcome message. And also that episode is consistent with what we know about Trump's view about alliances in a very transactional view. So actually the Chinese media kind of played up that episode very much to emphasize to the Taiwanese that the Americans do not care that much about your interests.
0: Does that huh? embolden Chinese leaders with respect to actions?
1: Uh, I'm not too sure because I think that's one way of interpreting the message. However, I think the other part is that despite Trump himself's view about Taiwan and all that, in recent years, the Trump administration has taken a series of measures to elevate U.S.-Taiwan relations. The most recent example is visited by Secretary of Human Services, okay. Azar. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think the other part of the message is that despite Trump's personal view, the Trump administration as a whole has been able to elevate US China relations. I think that's also the other part of the message that China has to take into account. Yeah. Basically, you know, his view, of course, is influential. I mean, Trump's view, he's a president. But uh, other people in the the administration and also in the U.S. Congress has been able to Mm. either either take actions on their own or push Trump to do something to help Taiwan. So I would say it's kind of a mixed message.
0: You know, Taiwan has been a central issue throughout the U.S.-China relationship. Even under President Nixon, Mm -hmm. we agreed to disagree on the Taiwan issue. And this has been... Something that's endured throughout our relationship. Hong Kong has emerged over the last several years, and in particular, demonstrations last year, and then the implementation of the national security law, which caught the US, I think, and, and the international community a bit by surprise. And this has, I think, raised the Hong Kong issue as an issue in the US China relationship. And developments there have had a significant impact on views not just in Washington but in Taipei, where we were just talking about about the future of cross-strait relations. I often say to Chinese friends that the Hong Kong issue Mm -hmm. concerns not just the US but also the broader international community who have concerns Mm -hmm. about the national security law and whether it will undermine the principle of one country, two systems and Mm -hmm. Hong Kong's autonomy. And you know this has only been reinforced by developments of late the arrest of jimmy lai the postponement of the fall ledge co elections and then the crackdown mm-hmm. on pro democracy party officials so to begin with in your sense mm-hmm. what drove china's rapid implementation of the national security law why now why so quickly
1: yes i think if you look at the most recent developments the implementation of the law is is rapid however if you look at the long history of national security legislation in Hong Kong, as you know, it, it can be dated back to uh, the early 2000s, right? 2003, when you have seen the first failure of attempt to um, pass a national security legislation in Hong Kong's legislature. So, so it has been a lingering issue for a long time. However, I think Beijing believes that developments in the last couple of years in the eyes of Beijing, I think the radicalization of the opposition's efforts or uh, measures have made Beijing come to the conclusion that it has to take actions quickly because really there are grave national security dangers looming. I think that explains the, the recent implementation of the, of the law. In some sense... It heightened the tensions between China and the U.S. and some other Western countries. But I think, you know, when you balance the concern about vital national security interests and other countries' negative reactions, usually the former trumps the latter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's my, uh, I guess, interpretation.
0: You know, I want to talk a little bit, if I could, about strategic cooperation and COVID-19. Returning to your article that you wrote on ideology and strategic competition, you explored an idea, as the need for strategic cooperation grows, the negative impact of differing political systems and ideologies lessens. And you point to the Cold War and 9-11 as two specific instances of this dynamic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but by this logic, of course, G one would yeah. could expect that the outbreak of the coronavirus would be an issue that would force the u s and China to put aside their differences and cooperate, and indeed, many had predicted that a global pandemic would be a unifying force between the two countries, but of course, that was not has not been the outcome that we 've seen so far. So, in your view, why mm-hmm. has ideological conflict between the u s and China actually risen in the face of a global pandemic?
1: Sure, I think, it's as we can see, it's a very unfortunate development between China and the u.S and also for the rest of the world because of the, the pandemic is basically global right now. And, you know people say that if China and the u.s cannot cooperate on tackling. Issues like a un- un- pandemic, you know, what else can they cooperate on? Because as, as you said, it's an area where supposedly countries ha- can cooperate easily.
0: We always set official channels, and <laughs> unofficial channels, that a global pandemic would be an issue where we would have to cooperate.
1: Right. So I think, of course, the, the general context of U.S.-China relations explains a little bit the dynamics during the pandemic, I think because, you know, the two countries already starting from late in 2017 and, and early 2018 with the uh, Trump administration national security uh, strategy report and national defense strategy report. I think that kind of grudgingly, China you know, never uses officially the phrase of a strategic competition or similar terms, but Beijing has to gradually face up to the reality that two countries are entering a new phase of strategic competition. So I think this is the, this general context. That's what I said in, in the article that strategic relations has changed from, in a fundamental way. And under this general context, other things change as well. Their interactions on COVID-19 is an example. Think that can, they can have an easy time incorporating turn out to be another better ground. Mm. I think that basically the pandemic is geopoliticized, I guess, by this strategic conflict. Another thing is that I, I think the interaction during the pandemic is similar to the security dilemma situation that I described in, in the article, which is that the tactics adopted by both Beijing and Washington during the narrative war, the narrative war, you know, who starts this, you know, who is doing a better job, they may seem rather offensive in the eyes of the other side. However, I think this tactical offensive itself is rooted in their respective domestic insecurity. They are trying to defend their own domestic legitimacy during this pandemic. So, it's kind of offensive in the, each other's eyes on the surface, but they're rooted in their domestic insecurity because you, have, you cannot appear less competent in dealing with this pandemic, especially if you compete with the other side.
0: Right. You have to get the support of your domestic public. So, you've identified a cycle in your piece of strategic cooperation to ideological clash and then back. Mm-hmm. And what's the road for the US and China in terms of returning to strategic cooperation look like? Is it possible? Is it something we should aim for? Can we get back to that strategic cooperation between the US and China? I think
1: the majority view right now in China is that it's almost impossible to go back to the old days of strategic cooperation. However, the two countries do not have to go to another. Cold War or whatever you call it or, or something even worse. So I think the majority view in China right now is that the bilateral relationship has entering a new phase, but they can try to find a way of competing in a more benign way mm. and also compete while cooperate. I, I think the councillor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi recently proposed that China and the US should take stock of the recent developments. And identify three clusters of issue areas. Right, one cluster of issue areas is for Mm -hmm. managing differences. Right, where really you can there are real differences and they cannot be resolved for the time being. And the second cluster of issue areas is the two countries are not cooperating, but it's possible to make cooperation happen. And the third cluster of issue areas is where really they can do a lot of cooperation, for example, the pandemic or uh, nuclear nuclear non-proliferation, climate change, those promising global issue areas where the two countries can really cooperate. I think that's what China is aiming for right now. However, many believe that it may not be very likely (laughs) before maybe next year after uh, after this election.
0: So let me close, if I could, Jed LA, moving away from specific question of strategic cooperation, I want to touch on the recommendations that you put forward in a recent China file piece, which I would recommend our listeners read. Is there a future for values-based engagement with China? And in the piece, you suggest mm-hmm. that both the US and China would benefit from practicing what you call ideological humility, while being confident the resilient of each of their own systems. What do you mean by ideological humility? And secondly, how could we move away from purely highlighting how different our systems are to actually trying to manage or resolve differences between our two countries?
1: I think on the surface, these two proposals may seem a little bit contradictory, right? Humble as well as confident, but I think they are reconcilable and they can be potentially constructive in terms of managing the ideological differences between the U.S. and China, ideological humility is just to recognize that each system has its own virtues and vices. So I think the point basically is that different systems are good at dealing with some issues, but maybe bad at dealing others. Or one particular system is good at dealing a particular issue at one time point, but not at other. 10 points. So basically, I think what you see in the discussion about this democracy, authoritarianism, dichotomy is too simplistic to capture the complexity of the operation of politics and and governance.
0: In a sense, for each of our governments to understand their strengths and weaknesses that they bring to the table in crafting a mode to manage our differences and maybe even solve some of those. Well, I want to. Thank you very much, Jiedale, for joining the podcast and having this discussion with me. I would encourage our listeners to read some of the pieces that we've talked about that you've written. I found them very interesting, and I appreciate you taking the time to join the China in the World podcast from your hometown in Hunan province. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegiechenghua.org. This episode was produced by Lucas Cheyenne with assistance from Madison Reed, Luke Incarnation, Li Chi Shu, John Ferguson, and Sophia Rosso.